I'm wondering if anybody, and I'm sure everybody does, anybody uh, knows the feeling of being humiliated. Uh, and uh, I could have many, many stories about myself in which I thought I knew what I was doing and I turned out completely and utterly wrong. And the many times that causes great humiliation. I remember, and uh, so I could share a story about me, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to share a story about my father. I love my dad. Love my dad. Um, and I may have told this story before because it's one of my favorites. We were driving around one day. I was in college, and he had picked us up, and he was taking us out to dinner. Uh, and uh, my dad, uh, and there's two separate stories that kind of go together. My dad uh, is not the greatest with directions. Growing up, my uh, my mom was always the navigator, and I would usually help, and that was in the day before GPS, and if, you, if any of you remember that, many of you will, some of you won't, but uh, we actually had maps that we had to look at, and we would do that, mom and I, and tell dad where to go. Well, college came, and my dad thought he knew uh, how things were going, and uh, he, he took us to this restaurant, and he ended up taking this turn uh, down a one-way street going the wrong way. And uh, the, the best part about this story is, is he turns down this one-way street. He's going the wrong way. He's like, I told you guys I would find a, short bu- a shortcut. I'm brilliant. As soon as he says that, we all look and see the one-way sign. And it was, the, it was an amazing moment because you, the look on my dad's face changed from complete and utter exuberance to complete shame and humiliation. Now, we still make fun of him. That's why I bring this up. I told him someday I'd use it as, a, as an illustration, so we'll be all good. Uh, but that's just a one funny story of humiliation. Maybe you've had a story where you've been, uh, you've been humbled by something. Um, I'm being, right now, I'm in the midst of a situation where I have to uh, really be humble. And, and some of you know that we've been having a little bit of an issue with our septic uh, tank. Uh, not our tank itself, but the pipe that's going from the house. And uh, the bathroom wasn't working. And uh, long story short, we're going to have to have it fixed. But here's what one thing I know that I can't do. I can't do anything when it comes to plumbing, mechanical, or pretty much anything you have to work with your hands. Don't ask me to do it. Um, <laughs> And so I had to call people and ask for help. And that's kind of a humbling experience. But it's a good experience to understand that we don't know everything. We don't understand everything. And sometimes we need help. And if we don't understand that we need help, so humiliation sometimes is because we make a fool of ourselves. But a lot of times just being humbled is, is something that we all need to have experience in our life because it's really easy for us to start to rely on ourselves to think that somehow we can do this life on our own or we can do this life without anyone's help, including God's. And it's interesting that this whole thing with my septic has happened this week because I've been really, God has really been working in my heart and my life just to be transparent on this idea of self-sufficiency, that somehow I can make life work out the way I think it should within my own strength and my own power. And then all of a sudden I take a shower and my tub starts backing up. There's nothing I can do. And uh, told a few of you this. The funny part about all of this was at one point I was so frustrated and realizing there was nothing I could do that I got down on my knees to pray. And when I get done praying, I look up and I'm literally in front of the throne as I figuratively was praying in front of the throne. Anyway, enough jokes. All right, so, but that was a moment in saying, God, I need help. And then people have come to our aid and things are getting fixed, hopefully today. But... All of that being said, humility and humiliation actually can be a good thing. It can bring us to a place, no, humility obviously is a good thing, even humiliation sometimes can bring us to a place where we realize that we are no longer self-sufficient and that we need someone's help. 
Now, oftentimes we'll ask for that help from other people, but obviously the ultimate help we can look to is God himself. Today, as we go into Judges chapter 4, we're going to continue to look at how God works in the life of Israel as they have this cycle of rebellion that continues on and on and on, and yet God still gives deliverance, which we looked at last week. And we're going to see God continues, that's the way he works with Israel. But in this, we're going to see some values. We're going to see humility of Israel and how that important that was to what God wants to do in them. And we're also going to see humiliation for God's enemies. Uh, that there is, God wants to make sure that he makes it very clear that you cannot live this life opposed to him. That you can't live this life working out your own way, but you need God. And he's going to show that clearly here in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 are uh, telling the story of, of Deborah. And Deborah uh, is one of the judges that we hear a lot about. She's the female judge. She's the one that uh, we talk about God using in a mighty way. But there's also a guy with her named, uh, and I, I'm not sure, I didn't look this up. Listen, it's spelled like Barak. We probably should say it Barak. I'm just going to say Barak because that's what I've grown up calling him. So I'm just going to call him Barak. All right, so there's Barak and Deborah, and God is going to use them in the life of Israel in a mighty way. And today we're going to see that I believe that it all boils down to humility, both on the leaders that God is calling and then humiliation that will be on his enemies. But before we get to reading that, let's do a little bit of review God has given Israel the promised land of Canaan. They must drive out all the people. That's God's, uh, God says, here is the land, but you need to continue to drive out the people who are here, or they're going to cause you to fall. Israel starts off encouraged, doing what God has called them to do, trusting in God, but very quickly they gave in to compromise, decided that they wanted to do things their own way, the opposite of humility, and actually started going in their own direction and compromising what God had told them to do. And then that compromise we will see throughout the book of Judges, we talked about this, will create a carousel of compromise. This downward spiral of Israel's failure to pass God's test. God gave them a test of leaving the the people around them to see how faithful and trusting they would be, to see if they would obey, to see if they would truly trust him in battle, and they don't. Instead, they go their own direction, as I said. They enslave the people instead of driving them out. And so we see this carousel of compromise. We see the same things happening again. Israel will fall away. Israel will cry out. Israel will be delivered. And then they'll get right back to where they were and even further down. And they continue to spiral down. Last week we looked at the fact that Israel's failure to pass God's test, Israel's failure to trust him, results in God's discipline and also his deliverance. That Israel gets disciplined by the nations around them. God uses the nations around them to discipline his people, but then doesn't abandon them to the discipline, but is there to deliver them. And so we're going to see that happen again today in the story of Deborah and Barak. All right, so we're going to look at chapter 4, and let's first of all just read the first three verses to get the setting. Where, why is it that Deborah and Barak are coming into the scene? And we're going to see that. So chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what we see happening. And if you remember from last, uh, the, the last time we were together, we talked about there was Othniel, there was Ehud, there was Shamgar, and, and these guys had delivered Israel. Remember, Ehud is the one who goes in and assassinates King Eglon in that very interesting kind of comical story. And he does that. He, he kills Eglon. They have victory over Moab. And now this is where we find ourselves after all of that in chapter 4. 
And it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hergoim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So here's the setting before we're introduced to Deborah, before we're introduced to Barak, and before we see what happens, the setting shouldn't surprise us. Ehud dies, Israel forgets, and Israel does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. Ehud dies, and therefore there's no longer a reminder of God's presence and power. And so Israel, we're told here in chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Keep in mind what this evil is. It's idolatry. They begin to worship other gods from the Canaanite people. They are intermarrying with them and worshiping their gods. And and even though they just came through this situation with Moab uh, and they were completely dominated by Moab and then God gave them victory through Ehud, you would think that would just spur them on to not follow other gods. But that's not what we see happen. This downward spiral starts again. And the people of Israel do what is evil in God's eyes. And so we see that happen in verse 2. We see that Israel is disciplined through Jabin and Sisera. Okay, so these are two guys. Uh, one is the king, and, and Sisera is like the commanding general. He's the one that's going to be the one in charge of the army, the commander of the army. And so these guys are sold into the hand, or God sell, sells Israel into the hand of these guys. God is the one, again, who is disciplining them. He says, again, you've done evil. Again, I'm going to send someone to oppress you. But this gets even a little bit worse. The oppression is even a little bit worse than in Moab. Because we actually see here uh, that we're told that they were oppressed in cruelty for 20 years. They were living in a cruel situation. Actually, in chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, we actually have an opportunity to see in chapter 5 that where Israel is at is basically... Uh, It says in verse 6 of chapter 5, if you want to skip over just a page to look at that real quick, but it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when war was in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? What's being said in this passage when Deborah, during her song, is saying, There were no people out traveling anymore. There were no real villages anymore. And there was no war. There was no war material among the people of Israel. That's how bad it had gotten. The people of Israel were being so oppressed that they weren't even living in villages. They were kind of like nomads. They weren't really traveling on the highways anymore. They were hiding from uh, Jabin and Sisera. They were hiding because of how cruel they were being oppressed. So this is not a good time for Israel. In fact, then we're told then they have no swords. They have no real military might to fight back. They're at a desperate place that they cannot climb out of themselves, which is part of the reason we see this setting. So finally, in verse 3, Israel does what Israel will continue to do. Israel calls out for help in their oppression. Their oppression is so bad that Israel, just as they did in Moab, they call out to God and say they need deliverance. They ask for deliverance. They call out to God in their oppression. They are distressed. And so they call out to God and asking for deliverance yet again. And what we're going to see 
is as they call for help, God is a God again, who is not only a God of discipline, but a God of deliverance, a God of mercy, a God of grace, who will pour that upon Israel as he provides new judges, a new judge to come and deliver his people. So that's where we get into the rest of chapter 4 and verses 4 through 24. We'll read that and we'll see the plot develop, what actually happens. And then after we look at what actually happens, I just want to make two observations about how God works in the story of Deborah and Barak. So if you would join me starting in reading in chapter 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, uh, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and from the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with its chariots and troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, if you, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road you are traveling will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Nephtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the, the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as way of the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had come up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to the chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up for this day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from, the Mount, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hegoim. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword not a man was left but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite and Jael came in to meet Sisera and said to him turn aside my lord turn aside to me do not be afraid so he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug then he said to her please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty so she opened a skin of milk and gave him drink and covered him then he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. That would happen. <laughs> and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So this is another interesting story, another interesting way that God uses people to deliver uh, Israel. And so the plot, there's three basic things we see happen. First of all, God calls Deborah and Barak to deliver Israel. 
Deborah is a prophetess, which we'll look at in just a moment. We'll look more at her and we'll look more at Barak. But we see that God is using her to kind of lead what's left of Israel, okay? And in that, she ends up being the mouthpiece to tell Barak that it's time to go and to deliver Israel. And so God calls both of them to work together to to uh, bring deliverance. So we see that happen. The calling happens. They amass the army and all of those things happen. Then we see Barak assembles an army, as I just said actually, and defeats the enemy. He goes, he assembles his army. They go uh, on the mountain and they face off with 900 chariots. And they're, they're going down the mountain to the, to the plain where there's this, the, the river Kishon is there and they're going to attack. And they do attack. And they have great victory and we see the defeat is sure. The defeat is total. We see that happen here in what we've just read. God gives great victory to Barak and his army. Just as an aside, and we'll get this a little bit later, but this was not a good place to fight, by the way. To fight in a valley against 900 chariots wasn't the best idea. You would be coming down the mountains, you'd be coming into basically a, a kill zone, which you would have been taken out had God not been on their side, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. We will get there later. But then we see at the end of this chapter that Barak and his army didn't get to Sisera, the guy who was the one that was the one that was really bringing cruelty and hardship and oppression to Israel. So Sisera runs away, and what we see is a woman by the name of Jael. Uh, finishes the job by assassinating Sisera in her tent. And I say assassinating Sisera, that's exactly what happened in a very interesting way. And we see that God uses her to bring ultimate deliverance in the fact that Sisera was the strength of Jabin of Canaan. Without Sisera, it's only a matter of time, as we see at the end of this chapter, that Jabin will be overcome. Because Sisera was his army. Sisera was the one who was doing all his dirty work in a very real sense. And so Israel is able to have victory and have deliverance from the oppression that came from the people of Canaan around them. And so that's the basic plot. God calls people to deliver. The deliverance happens through both an enemy being defeated through the army of Israel that they had no chance to win, but yet they did anyway. And then God uses an unlikely person, someone who's not even in the camp of Israel any longer, to assassinate Sisera. God uses all these people, all these pieces come together to bring deliverance. So we've seen the setting, we've seen the plot. Now let's make two observations. The first observation I want to make as we look at chapter 4 is that God brought victory. First of all, that that key phrase is going to come back and back again. God brought victory. This wasn't Deborah's victory. This wasn't Barak's victory. This wasn't Jael's victory. This was God's victory. But God brought victory through humility. We're going to see the people he chooses here, and you might not see it at face value, but I believe as we study deeper, we will see that God uses humble people. He uses humility. People that are committed and submitted to him to bring deliverance here. First of all, let's talk about Deborah. I'm going to say Deborah was a humble leader. Deborah was a humble leader. We see that we're told that she was a prophetess, and, and we'll see that in just, uh, well, that's the first thing we can see. She's a prophetess, and she's the one that people are going to to find judgment or to find wisdom. And if they have a, a, a you know, a, de- a debate or a conflict. Deborah was one that had found herself in a position where she was helping to determine some judgments, and she was judging in that sense of leadership. 
And she was doing that, but only because she was a prophetess. In other words, she listened to God and she spoke God's word. Got to understand and remember, this is not in a time where they have God's written word the way we do. And God would speak through prophets and he would speak through prophetesses. And that's what he's doing here with Deborah. He is speaking through her as she listens to him. Then she is furthering the message to those around her. And that alone shows humility. Deborah is not working on her own agenda. Deborah is not working on her own words or what she thinks should happen. Deborah is operating under what God is saying and listening to him and saying it and repeating it and showing that to others. So we see that indeed Deborah is a woman of of humility. In verse 6, you might not notice this, but she sent and summons Barak. Uh, what was one thing that Deborah couldn't do? Well, Deborah, not that she couldn't, wasn't able to, I guess maybe it could have happened, but Deborah knew her limitations. Deborah gets to the point where we've got to overthrow this army, and Deborah calls to a man who is going to be a warrior that already apparently, from what we're told, already has a bunch of men following him. It's not like he's, it's, this isn't a Gideon story where he, there is no leadership and then all of a sudden it's given to him. It seems like he already has a small amount of leadership and, and Deborah calls to him and then tells him what God has said. It's time to go to deliver the people. And so Deborah knew her limitations. She didn't amass an army for herself and march down to be the warrior. She knew that she was the judge who was bringing wisdom and God's word. And actually, in chapter 5, verse 7, she calls herself a mother to Israel. A mother, one that nurtures, one that needed to bring Israel under her cloak to kind of protect and to nurture and to care for. See, Deborah understands that God's calling on her life is to be a mother to Israel, not a a military leader, not a commander or a warrior. So she calls Barak. So Deborah knew her limitations. Just as much as I know my limitations and I don't try to do septic work. That would be bad. But Deborah knew her limitations. She knew that her point, her, the reason she was leading Israel was not to be a military leader, but to be the mother, the nurturer that Israel needed at this time of their oppression. But even saying that, the last piece shows humility as well. Deborah went into battle. Deborah, I suppose, could have said no when Barak said, will you go with me? She could have said, no, that's your job, not mine. I'm going to stay as far away from it as I can. But no, Deborah knew that she could trust God enough to be able to go into the battle, even though that's what, not what she was called to do. She wouldn't lead the army, but she would go to the battlefield, risk her very life if things don't go well. But Deborah trusted God enough to go into the battle with Barak and the army. So I just think three of those things show Deborah to be a humble leader. She listened to God. She operated according to what he said. And, and she knew her limitations and was willing to ask for help and to call others up to lead in other ways that she couldn't. And finally, she went into battle and was willing to be there and risk everything for the sake of the, the glory of God in Israel. Then we're introduced to this other character. His name is Barak. And he, we're going to see him as a humble warrior. Whereas Deborah was a humble leader, Barak was a humble warrior. Now, there's a little section here, and this is probably going to go against what some of you have have heard or studied or or thought about this passage. Uh, There are two primary ways of looking what happens between Barak and Deborah. So Deborah calls Barak and says, the Lord has told you to do this, it's time to go do it. So Deborah says that to Barak, and then Barak says something interesting to her. He says, well, you know what, 
I'll go if you go. That's basically what he says, to bring it down to a shorter version. Uh, And Deborah says, okay, that's fine, I'll go with you. Um, And then she says, but the glory of the the battle is not going to go to you, it'll go to a woman. Which at this point, people might think would be Deborah, it turns out it's actually Jael, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, there's two different understandings of this. There's one understanding that has been the one I've kind of grown up with was, well, Barak was kind of a sissy, right? Barak didn't really want to go to battle, so he was like, no, Deborah, no, I don't, I don't know if this is really what I should do, but uh, if you come with me, I guess I'll do it. Uh, okay, there, that's possible. I'm going to say that is possible. It's very possible. Because uh, in the next phrase where she says, well, because you've done this, you're going to be punished would be the way that people would look at it. Uh, I actually, as I studied this out this week, I think there's another possibility that might be more likely. I'm not going to say this is for sure, but I just want us to get thinking about this. Maybe it was that, uh, that Barak was a little timid. I don't know if that's true. Like I said, it seems like he already has an army that's ready to follow him. I don't think that's him. Uh, but I think it's more this. He understands something that he needed to understand, and that is that Deborah is the one who is connected to God. She's the prophetess. Think about that. She's the one that brings the messages of God. Later on, we'll actually see Barak waits until Deborah says go, and then he goes. But notice he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't drag Deborah with him then. He goes as soon as Deborah says to go. I think, I think, this is my opinion, I want to be very clear on this, that Barak wanted God's messenger to be with him in battle. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think he wanted Deborah to be with him because he knew that she was the one that was speaking for God. And Barak, throughout the rest of this passage, never shows any hint of, uh, of uh, hesitation or, uh, or that he is somehow uh, afraid to go into battle. He never shows another hint of that throughout the rest of the passage. Actually, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34, uh, Barak is one of the ones that is mentioned that had great faith, that went to subdue kingdoms. So I think Barak is a man of faith here. I think Barak wants God's messenger to be with him. And then the next passage, actually, where Deborah talks to him, Deborah says, "If you uh, says, I will surely go with you. Nonetheless, the road you are, on, you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. We read this and we assume that somehow the glory uh, was taken away. The glory was taken away from Barak. So basically, if he would have just gone without Deborah, that he would have received the glory that he was due. But that's not really the way God ever works. God doesn't want to give glory to men. He wants glory for himself. And in a, in a way, when we see Jael get glory for the death of Sisera, that points directly back to God as well. And I think Barak here, I think Deborah, as she says this to Barak, another way you could translate this in the Hebrew actually is this. On this expedition, you will not receive the glory. I think this could be just as simple a statement of fact. Just so you know, Barak, I'm coming with you, and you're not going to get the glory. Does that stop Barak? See, this is where I think we see Barak's humility. He wanted God's messenger with him, but I don't think Barak was looking for honor and glory. Either way we look at this, Either way, even if this is something that Deborah is saying because he failed or he was timid and afraid, at this point he could have said, never mind, I changed my mind. If that's going to be the deal, then you stay here and I'll go. 
No, Barak just obeys, goes, and does, waits for Deborah's word to go into battle. There is humility that is here within Barak that you can see that he's not looking for honor and glory. He didn't stop everything and say, no, wait a minute, no, I want to go in and I want to receive the glory, so therefore, never mind, I don't want you to come with me. Either way, whether his his uh, suggestion to Deborah, his question to Deborah, either whether it was timidity or whether it was um, humility, either way we see his humility continue as he's not looking for honor or glory. And I've already mentioned it, but in verse 14, we see that Barak listened and obeyed God through Deborah. So Deborah tells God, or God tells Deborah, this is what Barak needs to do. Barak does it. We see then, uh, later on, I said in verse 14, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Barak does it as Deborah tells him. Remember, this is the point where God has told Deborah, and Deborah now tells him. But this indeed shows great humility. In a day in which women were not highly regarded, Barak was willing to submit to the leadership in this sense of Deborah because she was the mouthpiece for God. And he was willing to submit, and he did that. And I believe he listened and obeyed God through Deborah because he was a humble warrior. I believe we see Barak as an example of humble faith, not of fearful obligation now we're going to see Gideon in just a couple weeks and we'll get there we'll talk about the timid people and the people who are weak and and afraid I don't know if necessarily Barak is that guy maybe he is in either case I believe we see humility the second observation we see as we looked at the plot of this is not only did God use humility in his people to bring deliverance but I believe that we see God brings humiliation to the for the enemy God brought humiliation for the enemy. He humiliates his enemy to show how much greater, how much stronger, how much just more powerful he is than even the most strong enemy. So the, we see this idea of 900 enemy chariots defeated by foot soldiers. 900 enemy chariots are defeated by foot soldiers in a valley. This shouldn't have been able to work. Foot soldiers coming down a mountain at people who are in iron chariots, which are basically like the tanks of the day. If you had iron chariots, you were pretty much safe. Nobody was going to be able to break through. You weren't going to lose. It's just you weren't going to lose. You outgunned everybody. And that's what we see, 900 chariots. It's mentioned several times because of how incredibly impressive that would be. And there would be no chance that any army would ever be able to stand, even though it might be 10,000 versus 900, the chariots themselves were war machines. There would be no help. There would be no hope. But yet there's victory that is given over the 900 enemy chariots that no doubt Sisera had held in a, had to be his pride, his glory. These 900 chariots that he was going to use to bring uh, cruel subjection to Israel And God gives victory over the 900 chariots. We're actually told uh, that God routed uh, the enemy. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots in verse 15. Before Barak by the edge of the sword. Another piece that we see next week, we'll look at it again. But in chapter 5, we see how this happened. So if you want to flip over to chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. In Deborah's song, she gives a little bit more insight on how it is that God gave victory over these 900 chariots. 
In verse 19 of chapter 5, the kings came, they fought, they fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. With their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. She refers to the river that is where the battle is taken, taking place. And it says the waters came. There was a flood. There was the stars from heaven came down. There is this idea that God was the one fighting. From heaven the stars fought. God brought the fight down. And then the, the river Kishon swept them away. It became a torrent. It became so powerful, so mighty, that it flooded everything. And what happens to wheeled vehicles in mud? Not much. And all of a sudden the chariots couldn't move. The chariots were swept away. And God brings Barak and his army down. Notice again, why, does, why do they wait until Deborah says, now's the time? Because God tells Deborah, now's the time. And Deborah says, Barak, now's the time. And Barak goes. And the timing had to correspond with some kind of flooding. Maybe it was rain that came out of nowhere. We're not sure. But what we do know is that God took what seemed to be an advantage to the enemy, being in a valley, actually ended up being to their detriment. And because of that, God gives victory and receives all the glory for the victory. All the glory is given to God. As we look at Rome, or Judges chapter 5 next week, that's what we're going to focus on, is how praising God for his glory and his work. That's all that this is about. This isn't about Deborah. This isn't about Barak. This isn't about Jael. It's about God. Again, he is the hero. He is the deliverer. So then we see the humiliation starts by 900 of their prized war machines being taken out in battle by simple foot soldiers, which we don't know how well that they are uniformed. We don't know how many weapons they have. There's obviously some sort of sword, because we're told that they were, being, they were killing people with the edge of the sword. But we're also told in chapter 5 that there wasn't much by way of war stuff. So I don't know how well they're, they're even equipped to go into battle, and yet God gives them great victory over 900 chariots. That is humiliating for Sisera and his army. Then we see in this passage of when we are now introduced to Jael, Sisera is killed by a woman with a tent peg. This is humiliating. And I don't say that to say anything negative. But I will say this, at that time, how would a warrior want to go? A warrior would want to go fighting it out with another warrior and getting stuck with a sword. Instead, Sisera, the mighty warrior, is killed by a lowly woman and a tent-dwelling woman with a tent peg and a mallet. We're actually told in chapter 5 that the tent peg was a simple household tool. Actually, this is not like, uh, it's not, never used as a weapon. Like, this is, the, this is not a weapon that she finds. She doesn't have a sword, so she uses what she has. And actually, at that time, one of the, the primary roles of a tw- tent-dwelling woman would be to, to make sure the tents go up and that she would put the pegs in and make sure the tents stayed sure and steady. And so she knew her way around a mallet. She knew her way around a tent peg. And so she used what is there, a common tool, by really a common woman. And he's killed in this way. And I know we did mention it, but it is interesting. She sends the peg through his temple, and then the most amazing line of, so he died. Like, of course he died. He dies. Like, if he didn't die, 
that'd be weird. So he dies, but, but the point is, he didn't die a warrior's death. He died a humiliating death. Another piece to look at, chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 30. Chapter 5, when Deborah's singing, she's talking about the mother of Sisera waiting for her son to come home. And in verse 30, this is what she says. This is what she says that the mother of Sisera would be saying. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for a neck, uh, for the neck as spoil. This passage in context, what basically is being said is, as Sisera's mother waits for Sisera to come back, she asks the princesses where he could be, and their answer is this. Well, he's enjoying his spoil, and what is his spoil? Well, the first thing I say is a womb or two. It's pretty obvious that Sisera was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a decent human being. He was humiliating people. He was using women, abusing women. He was exploiting women for his own pursuits because he had the right to because they were his spoil. Isn't it interesting? And I don't know for sure if this is why God did it, but it sure seems like it might be. Isn't it interesting that the man who exploited and abused women died at the hand of a woman? And it was the most embarrassing way a warrior could go. And God says, you're my enemy, you have walked away from me, you don't trust in me, and therefore I will humiliate you. And God does. And then we finally see humiliation, the complete humiliation is that the kingdom was destroyed by Israel. Verses 23 and 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan till they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This guy had amassed a huge, uh, uh, you know, a huge following. He was the king of a huge area. He had a huge army. He was impenetrable, and he got beaten by the little, really, the little weak people of Israel who didn't even have villages, who weren't even really together any longer. But they joined together, as we'll see in chapter 5, they joined together to defeat a, a king that no doubt thought he was great and untouchable. And so we see God brings embarrassment to the enemy, humiliation for the enemy. I believe that God wants us to see, and we'll see this again, that God desires humility from his people. And people that are not willing to be humble and are willing to be prideful and put themselves on a pedestal and to set themselves against God, like Sisera and Jabin, will be humiliated. Either we allow God to humble us now and we allow ourselves to be humbled, we look to be humbled now, or we will be humiliated if we set ourselves against God. That is the truth we see here in chapter 4. I believe it's the truth we see through the book of Judges. Even Israel at one point will finally be exiled and be humiliated because they were not willing to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They were not willing to be humble and instead they continued to be prideful and do things their own way. So what does that mean for us? Fast forwarding to today, right now as we sit here. Many of you know Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read it in its entirety. Well, not in its entirety. Its first 11 verses we'll read later on as our benediction today. 
But in Philippians chapter 2, we read something very basic. And if you have heard this before, you know where we're going. If you haven't, just listen for a moment because we're going to see what does this humility have to do with us? We talk about the deliverers needing to be humble. Well, who are we supposed to deliver? Who are we delivering? Well, the truth of the matter is it's not about us delivering. It's about, again, that we look to God to deliver us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, this is what we read. And this is talking about Jesus. And it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you've been with us through the book of Judges, you know that we've been saying this time and time again. God brings temporary saviors, temporary deliverers to Israel. Deborah and Barak are temporary saviors. They're temporary uh, deliverers. But ultimately, God will bring the once-for-all deliverer and savior, and he already has, and that is Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the ultimate example of what a humble deliverer looks like. He put his own gain his own fame he put everything aside to come and to die as a human on the earth for our sins he could have stayed in heaven and never come but he didn't because of his great love his great mercy his great desire to deliver he comes and he has come to us as a a baby as a human, lived a perfect life, died a death that he never should have had to die, an unjust death because he wasn't a sinner, and yet he died to pay for our sin. His perfection gave him the ability to die for our sin, to take the penalty for our sin. The times we've walked away from God and gone our own way, the way Israel does, we still do. We walk away from God, we put other things in front of him. But Jesus wants to deliver once and for all, and he died on the cross. He rose again to show his power over sin and death. It started his humility, but his humility ends up in great exaltation because he, he has defeated sin and death. And if we will trust in him, if we will humble ourselves to the point of trusting in Jesus and what he's done and who he is, when we can do that, then we can be saved. We can be delivered from our sin, from our pain, from all of those things that we can't have any victory over. God can save and will save through Jesus. He is the ultimate humble deliverer. Have you humbled yourself to the point that you know this deliverer? You know Jesus. Not just know of him, not just read about him, not just think about him once in a while, but do you really know Jesus? Have you allowed him to truly deliver you from your sin, to truly deliver you from your, self, uh, your, your self-motivation, from your, your self-fulfillment, from trying to do things in your own strength? Have you allowed him to become your deliverer? If not, today's the day. Come to him in faith and say, I trust you, Jesus. Take my life. Finally, is our, then is our life, are our lives characterized by humility? I know we don't have a whole lot of time. I want to hit a few verses before we go to communion. First Peter, if you join me in just reading First Peter 5, 5 through 7. First Peter 5, 5 through 7. Starting the second half of verse 5, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. 
Are we humbling ourselves as he, care, as he cares for us, we will see that God doesn't want us to think that we can be self-sufficient, but instead be humble with others and be humble with him. And he says he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is given to the humble. That's also seen, if you want to read another place, James 4, 6 and 10. This idea that grace is given to those who are humble. God is pouring out grace upon Israel because Deborah and Barak and the leaders are willing to be humble. And they're willing to be humble. And what is humility? Well, humility, we've said this before, and I'll say it again. The easiest way for me to define humility is to think most of God, to think much of others, and to think least of yourself. That is ultimately what humility is all about. It's trusting him completely. It's loving others. And it's putting our desires at the very bottom. That is humility. It's not that we think that we are somehow not worthy, uh, that, we're, that we're not worthy of being alive or that we just don't, shouldn't even exist. It's not about that. Humility is about putting God first, others second, and then finally ourselves. But it's about submitting to Jesus. It's about submitting to others. Grace is given to the humble. But if you're proud and you try to do things in your own strength, it's never going to go well. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you are in a place in your life where you are desperate for the grace of God, maybe there's a sin that you just can't get away from. Maybe there's just this situation in your life that seems to be beating you down and you don't know which way is up. God has grace and he says, I want to pour grace on you. I want to give you hope and I want to give just shower mercy and grace, undeserved favor on you. But if you are trying in your own strength to overcome that sin or to overcome that, that trial you're going through and you are still so focused on yourself, you're missing the point. That is pride. If you need God's grace, then you need to be humble. And say, Jesus, I can't do anything without you. I need you. Luke 14, 11 says the basic, this basic truth. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humiliated. If you are humble, you will be exalted. In other words, if you in this life want to live for yourself, eventually you're going to be humiliated. Sisera lived for himself, and he died in complete humiliation. If you or I decide that we are going to live a life that we exalt ourselves to the point where we live for ourselves before we live for God, then we will be one day humiliated before him. But if we are willing to say, I am nothing compared to Christ and I will give everything to him and let him be in control. That is humility and then that will bring exaltation. In other words, one day we will stand before him in heaven. We will be in his presence and as we are, we will be exalted because we will be as he is. We will be seeing him and experiencing him. That is the ultimate exaltation but we need to make sure that we are humble here, humble now. So my exhortation to all of us this morning is that we would look for humility so that we won't have to be humiliated. Coming to God and giving ourselves to him and not trying to do things in our own strength. That is the calling we have as Christians. But if we exalt ourselves and try to do things without God and we put him on the sideline or somehow we just know he's there but we only talk to him once a week but we know he's somewhere out there but We need to completely submit to him. That is true humility. I have a quote I want to read, and then I'm going to pray. pray. The music team will come forward, and we'll start with communion. 
this quote I found from Jonathan Edwards. And this is what this quote says. And obviously here he says, he's talking about a humble man. But this can be a humble man or a humble woman. Humble child. But this is what humility looks like. A truly humble man is, a sense, is sensible of his natural distance from God. Of his dependence on him. Of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom. And that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for. And that he needs God's wisdom to lead and to guide him and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. I know that's long. We do have it up there. Good. A truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him, and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. Will we be humble and truly submit everything to God? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for this reminder from Deborah and Barak and just others throughout Scripture that have shown great humility. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble. Whatever situation is facing us now, I pray that you would help us to be humble, to be looking to you and not to our own strength, to beg for your grace and know that there's no hope other than you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray if there's anyone here today that has not experienced or, understood, or, or does not understand what knowing you and uh, having a relationship with you is like, that they would accept and understand the death that you died in, in your humility for us, that they would come to you in humility and ask for you to save them. And God, for the rest of us today, even as we follow you, as we profess to know you, I pray, God, that you would show us the ways that we need to be humble. Cast away our pride, Lord, and bring humility in our hearts so that we can receive your grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.